Hello, and welcome to day two of the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. I'm your host, Peggy Hughes, and I hope you've been enjoying our first full day of events at the festival. Do watch along with us live on our website, wigtownbookfestival.com, or catch up afterwards on YouTube. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to us wherever you find your podcasts to fill your ears with audio Wigtown gold. This year, 2020, is the 250th anniversary of the birth of the remarkable Scottish author, James Hogg. To mark this, we've decided to dedicate an episode to the Ettrick Shepherd himself, author of the celebrated novel, The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner, but also a subtle and multifaceted writer whose other work occasionally gets overlooked. We talked to Valentina Bold, a Hogg expert, as well as two authors who have been influenced by James Hogg in their work, James Robertson and Graeme McRae Burnett. We start with James Robertson, whose PhD at Edinburgh University was on the novels of Walter Scott. A poet, short story writer and author of six novels himself, including the Booker Longlisted, The Testament of Gideon Mack, James is also a translator and publisher of children's books into Scots. He spoke to Wigtown fave Stuart Kelly about his relationship with James Hogg. James, I was looking over your previous works, and particularly your debut, where the protagonist, Andrew, says he's sick of Scottish doubles. And yet, throughout your career, you've been obsessed with Scottish doubles. Obviously, there's the long legacy of Hogg hanging over that. Can you talk me through what the obsession is? To think that I'm obsessed by Scottish doubles is quite worrying, actually. I think that first novel, The Fanatic, was an attempt to get all of that out of my system. That book was certainly, yes, deeply influenced by both Robert Louis Stevenson and by James Hogg. That idea that there are two sides to every story, that there are two or perhaps multiple personalities that all of us have within ourselves... Those things, I think, both Stevenson, but especially James Hogg, really honed in on in some of their writing, and of most famously, of course, Hogg in his private memoirs and confessions of a justified sinner. I don't know why those things struck a chord with me, but they did. And I always resist the idea that those are specifically about something called the Scottish character, because I don't really believe such a thing exists. But there is no doubt that they have some kind of resonance in Scottish literature, doubles, split personalities, and so on. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think because I was so fascinated by those early books, by Hogg and by Stevenson, they, it, it just kind of found its way into my own work. You know, to use a terrible word, the antisyzygy, the schizophrenia, the split personality, has gone right the way through your work, whether it's Jimmy Bond in And the Land Lay Still, whether it's The Magical Toad in To Be Continued. You've always been worrying away at what it might mean to be more than one thing. Uh, isn't that strange? This is, what, this is why it's important to have people reading, <laughs> reading your books and criticising your books, because... Often readers and, cri and critics see things that you don't see yourself. I don't think of it as me having been worrying away at this. I, I'm not particularly worried by it. <laughs> it just seems to be that it, it is completely normal for people to have different sides and shades to their characters. And when you try to explore that idea through fiction, then sometimes those divisions and overlaps within anybody's personality become exaggerated. And I think maybe that's what has happened in my own writing. And I think you can see that also in the work of James Hogg. I feel like I'm kind of sliding away from your question, avoiding your question a wee bit. But, but if you think about Hogg, you know, not only do we have those things going on in his fiction, but we have them going on in his own life as well. I mean, he is absolutely a, a, a sort of living representation of the idea of somebody who is moody one moment and then um, completely overexcited the next, fascinated by the fantastical one moment and then actually homes in on down-to-earth the next. So he, he, in his own lived life, exhibits all of those characteristics and it's not surprising in a way that they flow into his fiction as well. I'd like to move on to that because one thing which always strikes me as melancholy 
in Hogg's life is that he was perhaps more famous as a fictional character, you know, written up by Wilson and Lockhart. Do you feel that he felt slighted? That's an interesting question. Yes, his persona as the Ettrick Shepherd, in some respects, puts his own real persona into the shadows for much of his life. And I think he did resent that, but he also played up to it. I mean, Hogg was very conscious of the fact that he could play the court jester, that he could play the the country bumpkin, the peasant who had somehow managed to infiltrate the echelons of literary and higher society. He could play that role very effectively. So on the one hand, he, he himself did a great deal to create the idea of the Ettrick Shepherd and to play that role. On the other hand, he resented it when people thought that that was all he was, that he was just a kind of, you know, a comic uh, in the corner that you'd call upon to say ludicrous things in his in his very broad uh, borders accent. And there was a, a sense that he resented being looked down upon in that respect. And And certainly, you know, when you have somebody who is supposedly a friend like John Gibson Lockett, who can also be very cruel in the way that he portrays Hogg. You can understand why he did resent some of that. But as I said, he also, he definitely played to the gallery in that role. Well, indeed, I was thinking just now about his famous retort to his great frenemy, Sir Walter Scott, when Scott says he's got him an invite to the coronation of George IV. And he says, oh, can he go? It's St. Boswell's Fair. Well, isn't that interesting as well that that name crops up pretty quickly in any evaluation of James Hogg? And uh, Walter Scott was both a patron of Hogg, but also a friend to him. And I think he, was, I think Scott was a better friend to him than some of the other folk, uh, you know, who were around at that time. But interestingly, Hogg, yes, isn't that fascinating? I can't, I, I can't go to the coronation because I've got to go to the fair. Because in his um, anecdotes of Sir Walter Scott, which he, which he wrote after Scott's death, he starts off by saying, you know, the only blemish or foible that I could ever find in my illustrious friend's character was that he was too devoted to titled rank. So, you know, he's he's having a go at Scott and saying, you know, I, I'm not interested in that sort of thing. I'm a common man. I'm not influenced or affected by titles and grandiosity, but Scott is. He could criticise quite well back as well. Scott and Hogg represent two sides of the Scottish character, the kind of radical and the conservative, who are very friendly to each other and at some level don't like each other. Yes, I think that's very true. Interestingly, again, if you think about you know that that the Scottish tradition of of literature, whatever that is, a contemporary writer like uh, like Jim Kelman, when he talks of a Scottish tradition, he usually quite often cites James Hogg as the kind of writer that he feels in empathy with, going back to that period. But it's often forgotten that Hogg was a Tory. He was a working class Tory. You know, he was um, fervently anti-radical in, in many respects. Um, so yes, you're absolutely right. But I think I think it's very it's it's risky to kind of try to impose our own sort of political ideas, particularly of left and right, on that period in the early 19th century, because radical and conservative were often yes, they could be quite friendly to each other as well as as well as being very uh, antipathetic to each other. Um, and I think Hogg beautifully captures that, that kind of real mix, because he's, yes, he is politically very conservative, but he's also absolutely rooted in his peasant origins, and he does not want to give that up. He does not want to surrender that. But at the same time, he also wants to rise in society, and he wants to be lauded by the other literati. Can we talk a little bit about Hogg and the folk tradition? Because famously, he was the one that brought some of these poems to Walter Scott. And his mother said they weren't meant for writing down. How do you think that that obsession with oriture, as James Kelm would say, affected Hogg? I think that is the starting point for Hogg's writing career. Let's face it, you know, he taught himself to write when he was a shepherd boy. So basically, he grew up on the oral tradition. 
he came to the, the written tradition a wee bit later, if you like. You know, so he already had a kind of a very, very, very deep foundation of the oral tradition, folk tales, songs, you know, that he learned at his mother's knee. Yes, you're right that in, in a sense, he and his mother and others like them gave a lot of that material to Scott, somewhat unwittingly perhaps, which then Scott reshaped into the minstrelsy of the Scottish border and, and, and then into some of his great epic poems. But Hogg, again, always sort of reckoned that with Scott, it was a, Scott was kind of you know playing at it in a kind of uh, middle-class or upper-middle-class way, whereas Hogg, he was the storehouse of all the tales and so on. And he says something at one point about, surely, Sir Walter, you can't think that I belong to the same tradition as you. You know, I, I belong to the tradition of, of the fairies and that kind of thing. And that's a far, far higher tradition than, than your one of romance and poetry. James, it seems that in Scott's own life, with a character like his grandfather leaping over the Greymare's tale, he was always aware of something surreal under the world, that it wasn't rational, that it was actually infused with something else, something other. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, you're, I think you're right. Uh, his grandfather was one of the last people to actually see the fairies, I think as he says somewhere in one of his, his books. And, and then there's an interesting, another interesting kind of contradiction within Hogg, because he was a devoutly religious Christian, and yet he also absolutely still had a sense that there was a bit more going on in, in the other world or the nether world beneath the surface. And it wasn't just there being a, a world beyond this one, that is to say, the Christian idea of heaven. It was that there was actually another world that existed here as well full of supernatural beings of one kind or another, whether it's fairies or bogles or brownies or whatever. And that there was, yes, there was a level of the things going on in this world that we couldn't quite get hold of and couldn't quite understand, but we needed to be, be aware of them and also to be wary of them. I think he felt that very deeply. That's a very, very good line, to be aware of them and wary of them. Could I ask you, James, about the devil? Um the devil in Hogg's thinking? Well, in Hogg's work and in your work, Gideon Mack is perhaps the best description of the devil in the 21st century. What did you take from Hogg's obsession with the demonic? Well, again, I think that's a sort of a, another example of how we, you know, I just said a minute ago that um, Hogg believed that we should be both aware of and wary of the supernatural and I think he also felt that we should be aware of and wary of our own the, the demons within ourselves if you like and I think sometimes he thought of those demons as actually having a physical manifestation in the personality of the devil. Uh, I think it comes through in the Confessions of a Justified Sinner in the character of Gil Martin. We're never quite sure who or what Gil Martin is. This is the, the enigmatic companion of, of the sinner himself, Robert Ringham. You know, is he a devil? Is he a warlock? Is he a doppelganger? Or is he just a figment of Robert's imagination? It's that strange uncertainty that I find so fascinating about that novel. And that certainly was what was the major influence on the devil making an appearance in my novel, The Testament of Gideon Mack, which was obviously my attempt at a sort of late 20th century remake, as it were, of Hogg's novel. So the, the devil put me in a tight corner and say, do you believe in the devil? No, I don't. But at the same time, the devil as a manifestation of, of things that should make us stop and think is absolutely there in, in, that, in my novel, as it is in, in Hogg's novel. And The Land Lay Still, which is by far your most Scott-like novel. You know, where is The Fanatic, or Joseph Knight, or The Testament of Gideon Mack, really show Hogg's influence. When we get to And The Land Lay Still, suddenly you seem to go into a more Scott-like phase, a sort of epic form. You know, you've written about Scott, you did your PhD thesis on Scott. Do you see that novel as 
an outlier, a different kind of book as the other ones? That's really interesting. I mean, yes, it's a big epic book and it covers a lot of ground and territory. And in that respect, it is very definitely influenced by not just Scott, but some of the slightly later 19th century writers who were writing those huge social novels, people like Dickens and George Eliot and and then Trollope and so on. So, yes, there is a big influence of Walter Scott on Anne the Landley still, but I would actually argue that James Hogg's influence is still in, in there in the big section in the middle of that novel, which is the one you already sort of alluded to earlier on where you've got this character called Peter Bond or Jimmy Bond, but he's changed his name to Peter because he doesn't want to be confused with, with James Bond because he's, he's also involved in espionage. And that whole section, which is a very, that's a, a, a kind of very different, has a very different feel to it than the rest of the book, I think, is, an, again, another exploration of what happens to somebody who really gets into deep trouble because of drink, but also because of confusion about who he is and what he's supposed to be doing. And I think that owes an awful lot to Hogg as well. Um, so in that, so I, I take your point about that novel and the landlady still being very Scott-influenced, but I don't think Hogg is entirely absent from it. Might I ask, as we wrap things up, what's next? Well, I've just, I've just finished uh, what I hope is the last rewrite of a new novel. Um, it's been quite a long time coming, but hopefully it will come out next year. It is... Um, well, is it revisiting some of the same territory? I, maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It's not for me to say, I think. It's set in one location, which happens to be an imaginary location, but sort of rooted in reality in the rural part of Angus. But it's set over a very, very long period of time. Three different stories, that, one of which is in the sort of early medieval period, one of which is in the 19th century, and one, one of which is in the late 20th century and those are separated by large amounts of time but are linked by the fact that they all take place in the same location. So in a sense you could argue that's a revisiting of some of the things that uh, happen in in the fanatic but also perhaps in a, in a book like Anne the Landley still as well. So yes, um, you started this conversation by saying that I was obsessed with doubles. I think I'm actually obsessed with time and the passage of time and I think that that's what I think is likely to be the recurring theme in this next book. But in a weird kind of way, to take it back to James Hogg again, I think Hogg was quite obsessed with time too. You know, I think he was very conscious that time was rushing by fast and he wanted to be a successful writer. But he also, I think, felt that he had to explore what time meant in his own writing, whether it's in his poems or his traditional tales or in his big set-piece novels, uh, and we haven't even talked about, you know, novels like The Three Perils of Man and The Three Perils of Woman. You know, he explored a lot of that in many, many different ways. Thank you to James Robertson and to Stuart Kelly. Valentina Bold is an expert in Scottish literature and is Vice Chair of Literature Alliance Scotland and a board member of the Scots Language Centre. She recently edited an edition of James Hogg's The Brownie of Bodsbeck for Edinburgh University Press and is involved with the coordination and development of celebrations for James Hogg 250, hosted by the University of Stirling. Valentina, could you begin by telling me why you think Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner became the central book in Hogg's career. Well, you're absolutely right. The Confessions is the central book in his career um, today. But I think there's much more to Hogg than that. But I'll, I'll answer your question first. I think one of the things that's really remarkable about the Confessions and about Hogg's entire corpus is the way that he combines tradition and innovation. So in a book like that, He uses traditional tales from the borders, traditional ideas about supernatural, about good and evil. He blends that with Enlightenment thought, looking at religion from a very 19th century perspective. He adds uh, innovation as a writer. So he uses techniques like splitting the narrative, entering the character's uh, head or somebody's head. And he basically creates a total masterpiece, as no other writer had done before. Well, it's strange that it was the French who really understood this. When I was 
doing my research this morning, I found that great quote from uh, André Gide, where he says he had never been so voluptuously tormented by any book as the Justified yeah. Sinner. And that seems strange that he was more appreciated elsewhere than in his native country. Well, I think that's true. And uh, through Gide, many people approached Hogg, but in fact, Gide couldn't have read Hogg as originally intended if he hadn't been published by T.E. Welby in 1899 in the first restoration of the text as it had first been published. Throughout the 19th century, the Confessions appeared in expurgated, bowdlerized form uh, in collections like Thomas Thompson's works of James Hogg. And it was the fact that the first restored edition appeared in, sorry, I said 1899, I meant to say 1927, that Gide was able to read him in that way. So it was part of a process that in fact started in Britain with the, the Welby edition, with Edith Bathel's groundbreaking biography of Hogg, The Electric Shepherd, which made it accessible to a writer like Gide. I do want to talk about things other than the private memoirs and confessions of a justified sinner. And it struck me when I was looking at Hogg's bibliography, there is so much more to him. It's so diverse. If you were to pick out just maybe a couple of books that you think are underrepresented in his career, what would they be? My two favourite books by James Hogg are, without question, um, The Queen's Wake, which is a collection of poems that he presents as being written by diverse poets, including some living poets that he is parodying, when uh, Mary Queen of Scots came back to Scotland. So there, it's a competitive, bit like Boccaccio, bit like Chaucer, set of competitive poems for the prize of a harp presented by Queen Mary, and it's extraordinary. And that was really Hogg's breakthrough book in, as far as his contemporaries is concerned. The other one that I really love, partly because I'm editing it at the moment for the complete works of James Hogg edition for Edinburgh University Press, is The Brownie of Bodsbeck and Other Tales. And in many ways, that's the book that bridges Hogg's passage as a writer from someone who wrote wonderful, in the style of Scott, in many ways, novels, to the incredibly innovative, brilliant writer of the Confessions. And The Brownie is a set of um, three tales and a dedicatory poem, all set in the borders, all set within a radius of around five to ten miles of where Hogg lived and grew up, which explore the borders as the key to Scotland from the Middle Ages through the central tale, the killing times, the covenanting period, right up to modern Scotland from his point of view. And again, that is an extraordinary tour de force. And in the Brownie, Hogg rehearses a lot of the kind of psychogeographical approaches he would bring to the study of Edinburgh in the Confessions, and also his exploration of dualism and religious identity in the borders. So both of these, for me, are absolutely extraordinary works by Hogg and by any Scottish writer and by any European writer of his lifetime. It's very strange you mentioned that uh, deep connection to the borders because I was thinking again about The Three Perils of Man, which is, as far as I can see, the closest Scotland ever came to doing magic realism. It's such a bizarre, free-feeling novel. It, it is. And in fact, The Brownie, which predates, I think, Three Perils, and in that too, he does something close to magic realism. One of the tales, which has never been published as part of the set of stories since its first publication in 1818, is The Hunt of Eildon. And in that, Hogg uses magical shape-shifting. He has um, women turning into birds and ultimately being consumed by the gentry. There's some parody in there relating to Hogg's dealings with Blackwood Edinburgh magazine. But he, in some ways, rehearses these kind of ideas in the Brownie as well. And you're right, Three Perils of Man, an extraordinary novel, as is its pairing, Three Perils of Women, in which he comes Indeed. at it from a proto-feminist perspective, I'll say. The more I think about Hogg, the more I find him not a tragic figure, but somebody mm -hmm. who was, to use George W. Bush's phrase, misunderestimated the whole point. <laughs> and I was looking again at the poetic mirror, where he takes off every great living poet and does so with a panache that I think is bravura. Absolutely. I mean, he does Byron, he does Wordsworth, he does Scott. He is completely unafraid. And I think that uh, one of the great advantages he had as a writer, which perhaps wasn't appreciated so much in his lifetime or was distorted in his lifetime, 
was the fact that he was an autodidact. So he doesn't have the sense that, I suppose, many people who have been through an academic education have of other writers as being better, of being someone you could never hope to equal, something like that. But I think being a self-taught writer gave him a sort of fearlessness in his writing. And you're right, it comes out in the Poetic Mirror, it comes out in the Confessions, it comes out in the Brownie of Bodsbeck and the Queen's Wake. This is someone who just loved writing and was totally unafraid to experiment, unafraid to parody, took risks. Uh, and that's one of the things I really love about him. He is a great risk taker. And he is somebody who constantly is reinventing. I was reading The Pilgrims of the Sun last night. What an astonishing work. And the yeah. fact that even within the work, he's changing from ballad meter to blank verse to heroic couplets. And it's something, the only writer I can think of that is similar is Blake at this point. And I could never imagine Scott writing that or Galt writing that. Yeah. So, you know, this kind of huge dynamism that we have in him. I mean, I don't think many people will have read The Pilgrims of the Sun, but they probably should. They, they absolutely should. And one of the things that Hogg does in that, which is related to his fierceness, is combine, as you say, all elements of tradition. It's a tradition and innovator again, like ballad, you know, the, the, the opening um, sequences where the, the pilgrim leaves earth, leaves their body, very similarly to what he'd done in Kilmeny, which people may know, which was in the Queen's Wake. And he combines that with contemporary science. He uses elements like parallel worlds by analogy. So, so this was like contemporary theory that if the earth is populated, then so should other planets be. So Hogg kind of runs with that and does this incredible Dantean journey through circles around um, the earth. And, and I think the comparison with Dante is, is completely valid because he looks at different realms. He suggests hell as well as heaven. He brings in um, angelic figures and also fairy-like figures. And he brings this sort of pairing between a sort of platonic thing between souls, female and male, the pilgrim and their, their spirit guide, as I say, anchors this in really sometimes quite cutting edge contemporary astronomical theories, some of which he may have accessed through the Encyclopedia Britannica, which was current for Hogg, and others through um, his reading of um, periodical literature. And he had quite a rich library as well. So I think the, the comparison with Blake is, is great, but I think you know, Hogg is, again, this extraordinary writer who can take tradition, who can take literary tradition, who can take scientific thought, enlightenment thought, have a play with it and produce something quite beautiful and extraordinary, and particularly in a long poem like Pilgrims of the Sun. I want to circle back to Hogg as a person. It strikes me that he is frequently made fun of. And I found Wordsworth, he said, was undoubtedly of original genius but of coarse manners and low and offensive opinions. How do you think Hogg felt about being described in those terms? I, I think oh, Hogg is bigger than that. There are some offensive and I, I know the one you mean. I can't actually remember if it was Wordsworth who said it, because some of the quotes um, come from Thomas de Quincey, and de Quincey is frankly oh, being quite mischievous. <laughs> so there's another, there's another passage that, that, that de Quincey um, says about Hogg um, at Rydal Mount, I think it was, walking with, I think, de Quincey and Wordsworth is slightly in front. Uh, Hogg says something about a gathering of the poets. Wordsworth turns around and says, what poets? And that is not necessarily something that Wordsworth said, but it's something reported as Wordsworth. And I think one of the things you have to be careful with, 19th century writers particularly, is that they enjoy creating literary images of others. Hogg also was, as you know, um, very much parodied in Blackwood's Edinburgh magazine in the Noctis Ambrosianae sequence, where he's very much the herstute, drunk, occasionally brilliant rustic out of his depth in um, Edinburgh society. And as I say, I think actually Hogg was, was bigger than that. I mean, he got on with these people fine. He knew he was being mocked. He could deal with it. He was a man. He didn't crumble at that sort of criticism. And he gave as good as he got. And some of the pieces in the, the Poetic Mirror, for instance, are basically dealing a bit of that back. So I don't think he was a, a melting flower, put it that way. No, not at all. And interesting you mentioned Quincy, because yeah. in Blackwoods you have that ludicrous story where De Quincey gives Hogg opium. There's a certain sense of hauteur towards yeah. him. And the very fact that the most famous book 
was frequently attributed to Lockhart, who, again, was extremely dismissive of Hogg. When I was looking again at his anecdotes of Sir Walter Scott, and Lockhart is furious. He could no more build a bridge of goats across the Hellespont than write about that man. There's actually something deeply rooted in class here. There's a huge amount rooted in class, and I think Hogg was, was, was well aware of that. He let off steam, if you like, with some other contemporary working class writers like Alan Cunningham. And there's a, a wonderful quote from Alan Cunningham, speaking himself rather than um, misquoted, where he says, Myself, Hogg and Clare have been treated throughout their lives as intruders and stray cattle by much of the contemporary intelligentsia. And in fact, um, they're right to do that because we are intruders. So, you know, they were aware that for someone like Lockhart, who was a colossal snob, I mean, there are stories of (laughs) in um, Peter's letters to his kinfolk, he has this passage in which he describes Hogg as acting outrageously because he calls Walter Scott's wife Charlotte. And it's like, well, you know, Charlotte is actually her name, but obviously from Lockhart's point of view, Hogg should have been doffing the cap and calling her Lady Scott or something along with those lines. So there's 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 massive snobbery, which writer like Hogg was, was very much aware of. I kind of imagine him sometimes in his study at Altrive Lake at Modern Eldenhope, just maybe having a quiet chuckle at some of these people. Not at Scott, I have to say. I think he he and Scott had a very good friendship. And they fell out, but I think they, you know, sustained that friendship. But some of the ones like Locker and uh, Christopher North, um, John Wilson, I'm sure uh, Hogg had uh, one or two private chuckles at, let's let's put it that way. I was thinking about the arc of his career. And, you know, we have the early poems. We have The Shepherd's Guide, which I think you might be the only person that's actually read. But then towards the end of his life, he publishes his book of sermons. Yeah. Series of lay sermons. Yeah. And that seems a very strange thing to do. You know, he's known as being a gothic writer, a fairy writer, somebody interested in the supernatural, and yet, right towards the end, he suddenly wants to put his sermons out there. Why do you think that is? Well, I think it's partly the experimentalism. I mean, I think Hogg had a go at just about every genre of writing he could think of. Um, But also... Well, there's a deep, profound religiosity in his work. I, I don't see a discontinuity there. And, you know, he was a writer that grew up in Ettrick, um, former ministers, including Thomas Boston, you know, hugely controversial figure um, linked to antinomianism. And he was someone that was familiar with theological uh, discussion and theological debates. He talks about his mother teaching him to read from the Bible, you know, and um, in work like Confessions, obviously, he deals very much with um, religion issues from a slightly uh, distant standpoint perhaps but also a very intimate standpoint and I think lay sermons is and it's lay sermons on good breeding isn't it so yes. in some ways there's a, an element of perhaps offering a slum sort of repost to those who considered Hogg not to be particularly well bred but he's also showing that he is in command of that kind of genre as well so he hadn't done it maybe explicitly up till then but he does it at the end I mean, I think he gets increasingly experimental throughout his career. And when you look at his very first poetic collections, Scottish Pastorals and Mountain Bard, these are less innovative. They are in um, the styles of, in the first case, Scottish Pastorals and the styles of Burns and Ramsey, um, both writers that he loved. And the Mountain Bard starts experimenting a little with the voice of James McPherson as Ossian. But as he goes through his career, he begins to find his own voice more deeply and it's a very unique and original voice and I think Lay Sermons is in that trajectory. Tell me, when I was speaking with James Robertson we were talking about Hogg's Toryism and the fact that he only ever voted Tory and of course has a great love of the Jacobite relics. That doesn't really chime with how we figure Hogg these days as the radical. I think he's a radical writer but um you know, when you're thinking about the period he's, he's writing, radicalism has a slightly different tinge. I mean, it's post-Napoleonic Wars. It's um, after the radical rising that we've heard so much about this year, um, 1820. Hogg is the writer who needs to have patrons. It's very difficult. And, you know, Burns is an al- an analogous here for him to express anything like original, anything radical um, overtly in his politics. And, of course, Blackwood's magazine that he writes for is also a Tory bastion. 
So, you know, his bread's buttered on one side. And, and I don't think we can look for, you know, a champion of nationalism in Hogg. However, having said that, he does leave a few, leave a few clues to the fact that he might not have been wholly always comfortable with the Tory politics he advocated on a public basis. And one of these is the 1822 play that he wrote, um, The Royal Jubilee. And that is set on the occasion of George IV's uh, visit to Edinburgh, which Scott was obviously very much involved with. And um, Hogg's play can be read on several levels, but one of them is a satire. So he has a bunch of ghosts, of highlanders, of spirits, of Scottish um, iconic spirits, gathering in Holyrood Park to welcome George IV. I know we've not got much time here, but um, all I can say is it's not wholly meant to be taken seriously. And it seems that Hogg is having a little bit of a dig at his friend Scott's um, enthusiastic welcome of George IV to Edinburgh. The play was never performed. <laughs> I, I edited a version for it, which went out in a, in a periodical. And it's a wonderful play, not least because it does give, give these little clues of discomfort with his avowed Toryism. Just to wrap this up, one other quote that I found about some of the early reviews of Hogg. All say how wonderful he is, but they say, if tending to the wild. Do you yeah. think he's a wild writer? Um, I don't, not in that sense. I think that's to do with evolving ideas of peasant poets, which come from, partly actually, they start with Ramsay's Gentle Shepherd and Genou uh, in the countryside, but really kick off with Burns and Burns' self-presentation as a plowman poet. So the idea is that if you're working class and therefore not educated and therefore in this line of thought, probably not very bright, you can be touched by sparks of poetic genius. And that goes with wildness. It's linked to romanticism. It's linked to Wordsworth. And, but it's an evolving idea that's, that's kind of shorthand for a peasant poet. Wild in his thinking, perhaps, in an unorganised, fantastic way. But I think it says a lot about prejudices in the early 19th century, more than it does about Hall. Many thanks to Valentina Bold for her illuminating thoughts and, of course, again to Stuart. Last, but definitely not least, we talked to novelist Graeme McRae Burnett. Author of three novels, the last of which was The Accident on the A35, Burnett's second novel, His Bloody Project, was shortlisted for the Booker Prize and drew a number of comparisons to Hogg. We talked to him about his influences and have a general chit-chat about how people see influence in an author's work, as well as Graham's own reflections on Hogg's most famous novel, The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner. I'm really glad to get to connect with you again, Graham. I'm trying to remember the last time that you and I would have crossed paths. You cheered me at your festival in Dundee, or what used to be your festival, back in the old days of such things. Well, it's really very nice to have this jolly excuse to get to chat to you again, just to hear what you've been up to since that happy occasion in Dundee, and to pick your brains a wee bit about some of your literary antecedents and influences and so on, and to hear what's coming. So I'm going to dive right on in, Graeme, and ask you the question, who would you say are the writers that have inspired and influenced you? Well, I mean, uh, I've often spoken about Georges Simenon, the Belgian writer of 200 novels, including the Maigret novels, who I, I love for his incredibly sparse style and is kind of delving into the sort of psychology of his characters. And he's got a, a wonderful forensic eye for detail and he uses that just to sketch a scene very evocatively, but without great long passages of description. And that's certainly had an influence in the same way that, you know, George Orwell, especially in his, um, you know, non-fiction work, he's got that same kind of ability just to write down what he sees, you know, without too much literary language. I love Edna O'Brien, especially those early novels in a kind of similar way. They're very simple in, in style and they don't have too much literary affectation. And that, that's kind of something I, I strive for. You know, I don't want to be using language for its own sake or to draw attention to itself. There's an obscure, another Belgian writer called Madeleine Bourdieu, who um, only wrote two novels in a volume of short stories. And again, it's just writing with simplicity. It goes to the kind of heart of the sort of psyche of its characters. I would love to write as beautifully as she does. 
and I, I think she deserves to be more well known as well. You know, there's always a Kafka, Dostoevsky, you know, the big European classic writers as well. Yeah, it's so interesting that kind of the art of simplicity. I think it's often, it's not taken for granted, but I imagine it's difficult to do that well, and yet it looks really simple. I mean, if you if you read the opening page of Down and Out in Paris in London by Orwell, and he, he's sitting at the window of his hotel room in Paris, and he just describes what he sees in the street, and you think, oh my God, how simple, that's how to write. But it is, as you say, it's more difficult than it seems to produce that feeling that it's very easy. There's an anecdote that sticks in my mind, which I've never mentioned before. You know the Scottish comedian Kevin Bridges. And Kevin Bridges tells a story about some guy coming up to him in the bar afterwards and saying, ah, oh, you're very funny, but, you know, anyone could do what you do. And that's because Kevin Bridges, in the same way as Orwell writes, Kevin Bridges gives the impression that he's just chatting and you know but there's a tremendous art and there's a lot of work that goes into creating that sort of illusion of transparency I think. I did want to ask you Graham about especially with his bloody project your second novel and the Booker shortlisted one you know it drew a lot of comparisons to people like James Hogg and people noted overtones of Stevenson and even McIlvanny I read somewhere that someone said that you know it was very much the McIlvanny of Doherty in the village and all that stuff I wonder what that must feel like when a book goes into the world if those weren't to your mind your influences well I mean in general I mean people often see influences or what they perceive to be influences on your work with things that you've never actually read. Um, but what they're doing is making a connection with something that they've read or seeing the similarity between that. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, I think we all read and what we're reading reflects on other things that we've read. And if there's a similarity, you see it as being an influence. I think influence is a, a very complicated thing as, as a writer. I think the more I write, the more I realise that I'm a kind of magpie and I pick up little bits and pieces, you know, quite unconsciously and they end up in your book. 25 years ago, I read a biography of um, Oscar Wilde and there's a description of how he delivered speeches and his very particular way of speaking. And uh, in my new book that I've kind of just finished, uh, you have a description of how one of the central characters speaks. And it was it's just like a little magpie sort of nibble from that biography I read and it stuck in my head 25 years before. You pick up things all over the place. As to the ones you met, well, I mean, obviously we're here predominantly to talk a little bit about James Hogg. I did, I, before I started reading, uh, writing his bloody project, I reread Justified Sinner, which I'd read probably either when I was a student in Glasgow in the late 80s or maybe shortly after that. It's a mind-blowing book um, in, in all sorts of ways. You know, it's mad, crazy stuff, you know, almost sort of hallucinogenic at times. But I I think what really sticks with me about Justified Sinner is the incredible sort of narrative structure of the book and the narrative techniques that Hogg utilises to tell his story. Most obviously, you've got the, the opening section, the editor's narrative, and the, at the end, you have the editor returns and this bookends what appears to be the main part of the book, the actual con- Confessions of the Justified Sinner. You know, in these editor sections, which are probably my favourite parts of the book, he utilises all these techniques to sort of signify how the story he's going to tell is actually real and exists somehow beyond the confines of the book. So that's, you know, just little things like he quotes people or he, he says, this is all I know about this. I, I know no more of this story than I can tell here. And he says, oh, you will all have heard of this story. He's setting it very much up as something that exists in the real world and he's only collecting this material about it. You know, I've just reread the book because we were going to have this conversation and I was really struck by how exactly that sort of fits with, you know, how I structured his bloody project where I begin with my own introduction and how I came across these documents. I have quotations from various sources, you know, even sort of casting doubt uh, on the veracity of who, who may have written the text and so on. So, you know, that that is without a doubt, you know, a huge influence, not I think it's to some extent a conscious influence. I think in the early, in this period of novel writing in the 19th century and probably in the 18th century as well, these uh, kind of 
narrative techniques are were more common than they are today. I mean, I, I never think that I'm doing anything or, or trying to do anything original. I'm only trying to utilize the techniques of storytelling which are available to you as a novelist. And I think if you're interested in that kind of thing, you know, read Justified Sinner because it's just full of these kind of and it's playful, these playful techniques, the techniques that make you think, is what I've just read true? Or was somebody being economical with the truth? You know, and I, I find that very fascinating. I'm really glad you've led on to that, Grim, because I did want to ask you about that, just that conceit. And why do you think you and, and as you've mentioned, other writers have been drawn to leave the reader in doubt as to truth versus fiction? Why do readers want it to be true? Well, I mean, there's different kinds of truth. There's there's sort of an objective truth that maybe a story actually happened in the real world, which when you're reading a novel, you know that it didn't really happen. You're engaging in a kind of contract with the book and perhaps with the author as well, that you want to believe in the truth of it. And I think this other kind of truth is maybe a truth towards perhaps historical detail, a truth towards the setting of a novel. I mean, if I'm reading a novel set in the West End of Glasgow, where I'm sitting now, and somebody says it takes two minutes to walk from Socky Hall Street to Byers Road. I'm like, no, no, that takes at least 15 minutes. So there's that kind of truth. But I think the most important kind of truth in a novel is psychological truth and that uh, characters, as we read, we come to understand who the particular character is and that his or her behaviour is consistent according to how we understand that character. And I, I think that kind of truth is extremely important in terms of throwing into doubt the truth or not of what you've read, I think that really comes into play when we're dealing with kind of first-person narration. If you're using the first person as a novelist, you're only presenting a partial version of the events being described. I mean, here again, Hogg is a great example of that because in the first part of the book, the editor's narrative, he tells the whole story. And the second part of the book, The Confessions of a Justified Sinner, retells this, the same story from a different point of view. So when you do that, you're placing together two conflicting or possibly conflicting versions of the same events. And at that point, the reader, I think, is just tremendously engaged by what's happening because it's up to the reader to decide whether he or she think, believes one version of the events or the other version or some kind of mixture of the two. And I think that's a very exciting position to be in as a reader. And I also think if things are left a little bit unresolved in a novel or in a film, the piece of work lingers longer in your mind. I remember when uh, Michael Haneke's film Hidden came out. It's a film with a tremendously enigmatic ending. It finishes, you're like, what? what? It's finished? What happened? And uh, But I never remember a film which produced so much chat amongst me and my West End pals, you know, about the ending. And if the film had ended with a, a closely tied up resolution, I don't think you would be having that, those conversations. And, and similarly, you know, with His Bloody Project, you know, so many people have said to me that the book lingered for a long time in their mind. And I, I genuinely believe that's because I don't tie up all the loose ends. I leave some work for the reader to do in deciding whether Roddy McRae, the central character, is insane or, or not insane. And so I think I just think it's all very exciting. It is very exciting. And that is a tremendous film. I've not watched that film for a while. I should look it out again. I watch and rewatch that film. And, um, you know, I quite often, if I come home after a few drinks, I put Hidden on, which one of those films that uh, reveals different layers of meaning, uh, I think, as well, which, is, you know, as with a book, a novel, or a film, you know, it's what you always want to. And I am a great believer in, in rereading. I mean, I read Justified Sinner, as I say, probably seven years ago, and I've just reread it. And, it's, you know, it's amazing how much you forget and how much you get from rereading a, a, a really rich text. No, absolutely. Something you said there about books that have or have not a sense of closure or that give the reader an ending that's in some sense definitive, that's a characteristic that some would sort of attribute to traditional, let's say, crime novels, that sense of finality. And that's something you resist. And it just led me to wonder if you would say a little bit about your own attitudes to genre. Um, when I was writing His Bloody Project, I mean, I never thought, you know, I'm writing a crime novel. I don't think it's a, a genre novel 
in the sense that my other two books, Disappearance of Adele Boudot and The Accident on the A35, they are clearly sort of genre crime novels. And I don't, I don't mean that in any way to disparage genre fiction. I just think when you, when you use the term genre, we all understand through exposure to films, to TV series, to novels, we understand what terrain a book is in. And that's, you know, and there are certain stock situations or certain stock kind of characters, which of course you have to, as a writer, utilize and develop and maybe deviate a little bit because you don't want it to be formulaic. I mean, in my first book, The Disappearance of Adele Badeau, the ostensible mystery of the book is the disappearance of this waitress called Adele Badeau. But really the book isn't about that. It's about the impact of that event on the two characters. And this, you know, goes back to, you know, Simonon. You know, what Simonon is always most interested in is not the crime or the solving of the crime. And even in his 75 Make Ray books, you know, I never get the sense that he really cares who did it. He's interested in the investigative process. He uses Make Ray to delve beneath the surface of the characters he meets. So he's always a writer of character. And uh, similarly, you know, not wishing to sort of compare myself to Simonon, but that, in a way, what I was trying to do, that I was interested in what impact this is going to have on these two central characters, Manfred Bauman, this weird outsider, and George Gorsky, the cop. And they, they hopefully develop through the book and they're brought together because of this disappearance. Um, I don't want to say what happens at the end of the book, but it doesn't have a conventional crime novel ending. Similarly, with the accident on A35, I mean, the accident on A35, it's about an accident. As far as we know, it's not a crime, but it's clearly a crime novel because it has the structure of a crime novel. And uh, again, I'm using that incident, this accident, the car, fatal car accident, to explore the characters who are affected by this, this incident. There aren't sort of conventional tropes of crime fiction in that there is a detective and he is investigating. And there's also in the accident a young teenage boy. Raymond Bartelme, and he's also investigating the death of his father. So although there's not really a crime, it's a crime novel. So, I mean, I, this is how we, un, we we all understand what a crime novel is. It's a, you know, it's a very flexible and wide-ranging genre or bit of terrain. You can use the knowledge of the reader and their expectations to your advantage in some way, and you can play a little bit with it. So I suppose, you know, I often get called playful. <laughs> I get called other things as well, but uh, uh, <laughs> I, I, I quite like the word playful or even mischievous, but I think that's where you can use genre to your advantage. Yeah, no, it's there to be there to be mucked about with, I would say. Character is clearly really sort of central. The psychology of, of others is central to your work, Graeme. Um, and I, I'm really fascinated by how one, but how you, you know, how do you build a character and, and make them someone we want to root for or stand with? So I'm thinking of Hilary Mantel said, and I just love this idea. She said when she was writing um, The Giant O'Brien, she has a thing where she sort of almost imagines she's interviewing her characters. That's how she she gets to know them and get a sense of them. And when the giant O'Brien came into the room and went to sit on the chair, he had to test it in this myth sort of fantasy room and fantasy chair. He had to test the chair first to see if it would take his weight. And I just love that idea. In the boat. And that was it. She didn't need to do any more. She already had the giant O'Brien. I just wonder for you, how do you begin the approach or get near to your characters? Um, it's such a great question. I'm not a planner um, at all. When I was writing his bloody project and the novel, which I've just finished, which is called Case Study, and they both have first-person narrator. And I think finding the voice of the character is so, so crucial. I mean, that, by that, I mean the language, you know, the actual, you know, vocabulary that they utilize, the words they use to name the things in the world around them, which is very important in his bloody project because he lives in a croft and there's all this vocabulary that is unfamiliar to non-crofting people like myself. But, you know, using those wonderful word, words like yelled and yeen and stark and swee, it's tremendously evocative of the, both the world and of the character. 
So, you know, the, the voice of the character is tremendously important. I think I build the character through, you know, a sort of process of trial and error as I write. I write pretty chronologically. And sometimes you find your character is in a situation and you're not sure how he or she's going to behave. And I think that's because I haven't quite got to know the character yet. But as you go on, you know how they're going to react. So with my two, the two French novels, the George Gorsky books. By the time I was writing The Accident, I, I already knew Gorsky. So somebody could suggest to me, you know, any situation, I could tell you what how Gorsky would feel about being in that situation, even although I haven't yet imagined it. With the book I, I'm writing at, at the moment, it's a, you know, the, the character, it's a female protagonist. I wrote the first line of the book, or a version of the first line of the book, on a scrap of newspaper next to my bed because I suddenly had an idea. Within this quite long sentence, she said, I suppose. And uh, these two words, I suppose, became the kind of bedrock of her character, because within the sentence, she was stating something, but then she inserted these words, I suppose, and she she was doubting herself. You know, from just from that very first moment of beginning to write in her voice, I was finding her voice because I found this uncertainty in it. So, you know, it just it goes on and it builds up like that. Get what you mean. You do, and then, then having said about about Gorsky, you don't you don't need to show all that in the book. You know him, and you know exactly how he'd react in any situation. So, even a small gesture sort of becomes enough. You've alluded to this new book, Graham, very tantalising and very exciting. I wonder if you could say just a little bit more about it and, and what, what we might expect and, and maybe when. I'm hopeful that it will be out uh, next year. The book is called Case Study. It um, tells the story of a woman uh, in her mid-twenties who believes that her sister has been driven to suicide by this radical psychotherapist called Arthur Collins Braithwaite in order to sort of investigate um, or get to the bottom of this. Uh, she presents herself as a client to Braithwaite under an assumed name. And the, the book, in true His Bloody Project style, is told through a series of five notebooks which she has kept as a record of what's occurring and which, very luckily for me, uh, were sent to me. So there's kind of these five notebooks and there's also some biographical information about Arthur Collins Braithwaite. So it's mostly, the book's mostly set in um, in London in about 1965. So that, there you go. That's an exclusive for the podcast. That is so exciting, Graham. You've just reminded a question that, uh, or something that Denise Miner said just about the atmosphere that books create. You know, that, that when she was writing The Long Drop, mm-hmm. she wanted it to, as a book, as a not as an experience, but the, the, as a book, she wanted it to kind of whisper itself into the ear of somebody at a tall stool in a bar you know what I mean like that was the kind of the atmospheric pressure if you like what would you say the the weather or the pressure is in this book the atmospheric pressure what a lovely way of putting it you know I on the one hand it's set in the 1960s in London but London was swinging for a small proportion of the population the vast majority of people still had brown furniture and um, were, were people of the 50s so my, my protagonist is a kind of, she's a kind of woman out of time. Sort of, she's very sort of repressed and uh, a little bit straight-laced, throwback from, to the 50s. Whereas the character Arthur Collins Braceway is at the heart of um, radical psychiatry, R.D. Lang sort of territory, and, you know, being a therapist to, you know, actors and um, celebrities. So there's, there's a kind of clash of these two worlds in the book, which I, I kind of like. I mean, I, I'm fascinated by, I mean, you know, it's, it's in his bloody project, of course, you know, I'm fascinated by psychiatry. And I think part of the inspiration for this book was for a long time, you know, reading psychiatric case studies, which are always fascinating. And, it, you know, this again goes back to something we were talking about, because a psychiatric case study is always like a little mini novel. And you've got two characters, but you only have, generally speaking, you only have access to one side of the story, that of the, the therapist. Um, but the more I read, you know, psychiatric case studies, the more I came to sort of doubt whether what the psychiatrist saying was true. It's only It's only an opinion. And often their modes of thinking are quite convoluted. And uh, so, yeah, I, I got to thinking, what if we were to see or hear the other voice of this conversation? And there are, fascinatingly, you know, some books, you know, which present people's quite famous psychiatric cases and they've 
the, the patient has written their account. And so that, that clash of two versions of events is kind of embedded in it as well. I'm probably shifting away from your atmospheric pressure there, but I mean, in a way, it's the little pressure cooker situation of the therapist's studio or surgery and what goes on in, in that room. It's a great place for us to draw to a close, actually, Graham, because it sort of leaves leaves the reader wanting more. I certainly am now desperate to know everything about this book. It sounds really, really brilliant um, and a lovely return to the things that clearly draw you as a writer. And, and so thank you for telling us about it and for rereading The Hog. Yeah, no, it was great to revisit Hog. And, um, you know, actually, I mean, just as I'm just looking down at the can I just read this? It's by the very end of the book. Yeah, go um, on. And it just goes very much to, I think, um, some of the things we've been talking about. And so this is Hog at the very close of the book, casting absolute doubt on everything he's written. He says, with regard to the work itself, I dare not venture a judgment, for I do not understand it. I believe no person, man or woman, will ever peruse it with the same attention I have done. And yet, I confess, I do not comprehend the writer's drift. I love that as a way of ending your own book. Amazing. Just that self-doubt, goodness. Yeah. yeah. And good to give him the final word also. Very Absolutely. good. Absolutely. I hope deserves yeah. it, I think, especially on the 250th anniversary. Thank you so much to Graham McRae Burnett. We are so excited at the news of his new novel coming out next year and can't wait to read that. And thank you, of course, to Valentina Bold and to James Robertson and once again to Stuart Kelly. We hope this episode has whetted your appetite for all things hog. Do follow along with the at James Hogg 250 Twitter account for more information on the hog 250 campaign. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed being with us as much as we always enjoy being with you. Join us again tomorrow for another lively slice of the Wigtown action. But until then, take good care of yourselves. Bye bye.